Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday because I'm tired of seeing black men die. He casually put his knee on a human being's neck for nine minutes as he died like a zebra in the clutch of a lion's jaw. And we watch it like murder porn over and over again. So that's why children are burning to the ground. They don't know what else to do. And it is the responsibility of us to make this better. Right now, we don't want to see one officer charged. We want to see four officers prosecuted and sentenced. We don't want to see targets burning. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burnt to the ground. So that was Killer Mike, uh, rapper, actor, activist from Atlanta, one half of the duo, Run the Jewels. And he gave that amazingly eloquent speech, uh, kind of impromptu, actually, in the uh, Atlanta mayor's office. And it's so powerful. The, the eloquence of it is just so powerful, so um, important. And so we wanted to start the episode with that. But, you know, overall, this has been an, an incredible week, a tragic week, certainly. But it does feel like something's, something's happening, right? It does. You know, I mean, we're historians and we're supposed to be a little skeptical, but I, I agree um, in, in all the, the ways you might measure it in real time. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to think, or maybe I want to think that something's happening here. Yeah, I remember, you know, back when Michael, remember the Michael Cohn hearings? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, I, I remember I went to the, the local bagel shop and I saw someone there I knew and she was watching it on her on her phone as she was waiting in line for bagels and she's like i don't want to miss this because it's going to be historic and i didn't say it but i'm like nothing this is not going to mean anything it's just another you know step in this sordid tale of of greed and corruption and it's it's going nowhere and uh this just just feels it feels different um i you know i think it was episode two where i made the, the the point that we're in this slow motion apocalypse of pandemic mm-hmm. and you said the other you said i think it was yesterday you said Things are things are speed, speeding up now. There's nothing slow motion about what's what's going on in the world at, at the moment. Yeah, it occurred to me it's the first full blown uh, what we might call racial uprising, uh, racially related uprising in the age of social media. You know, the Rodney King riots, uh, so called of this of the '90s. You know, were bef- really before social media, and, I, and what I've noticed mostly is how quickly messages have been broadca- broadcast in real time, uh, images, sounds, statements, and maybe that's part of what makes it feel like, yeah, something's happening here. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, I think the social media aspect, it, it really makes, nothing's local anymore. I mean, everything's local and nothing's local in some ways, because the, the Killer Mike speech that we started this with, and that was just a, a really like a minute of about an eight minute long speech, go listen to it if you haven't heard it. 
that was just given on, you know, in Atlanta on local TV. It was not broadcast on CNN or anything like that. But because of social media, it very, very quickly spread around and, and was being shared and all this sort of stuff. And it became this, I think, pretty iconic moment of this of this uh, period. And, and, you know, you talk about social media and kind of rebellion, revolution, whatever we're going through right now. Um, the, maybe the, the analog is the Arab Spring of, of a few years ago. Yes. Where all across the Arab world, these, these um, uprisings against local governments emerged and it was all being spread on social media. Yeah, and in the case of the Arab Spring, much of it ended in reaction, you know, with uh, forces military and otherwise, you know, reclaiming uh, power. So there, there's no really predicting. Historians are not given over to that sort of thing. We predict the past, right, not the future. Uh, yeah. But but it, it figures to play out in real time before our eyes. Yeah, and I, that's a great point about historians and predicting the future. I, I've been a little frustrated seeing on social media, which I, I try not to be on too much these days, but... Obviously, when this kind of world-shaping stuff is happening, it's hard to stay off. But um, I've seen historians in social media, you know, using their expertise in the past to, you know, pr- predict where this is all going. And just take a step back, right? It's not it's not necessary to do that right now. I didn't think um, you were going to bring up Meacham this episode. <laughs> no, Meacham has hope. <laughs> this, is, this is really bringing up some... This is episode seven in his series. Why did you have to do that to me? <laughs> yeah, move past Meacham, but yeah, yeah. This um, there there is something a little a little off about historians mm-hmm. making these grand claims about where this is going because you know in 14th century Venice what something happened or something like that. Whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. let stuff happen. Let's not declare stuff mm-hmm. what they are before they've they've played out. Um, you know, we're at a this flexion point certainly where. It's going to go in a number of directions. Hopefully, it's, it's not going to result in the reactionary stuff we saw in, in the Arab Spring or in other periods of American history, you know, post-1968 in the United States, for instance. It, it, you know, it feels different because it feels like people are more aware of the, of the stakes, maybe. Um, people, you know, I went to a protest in my, my local community yesterday, and one of the really powerful things is that the organizers, you were, were inviting people up to talk, and they made it clear that, you know, people of color and, and black people in particular always had precedent on the microphone, so... It wasn't just going to be, you know, in a, in a community that is largely white, it wasn't just going to be white people speaking on these issues. They were going to prioritize the voices that, that matter most right now. And that's that's something I don't think people were cognizant of even a few years ago or cognizant enough of even a few years ago. And it was a powerful thing to, to see um, in this moment. Yeah, it is. And, and certainly in that sense, uh, social media does allow for the broadcasting of many more voices. And I, you know, I tell you, it's why we're calling today's episode the history of now. We're not in any way interested in trying to predict some sort of future, but we are interested in what seems to be this eternal present moment that we're living in, you know, as I say, in real time, and how, uh, as we'll see in the episode, it connects to a longer moment, a historical moment. It's not uh, you know, somehow suspended in, in space or time. It, it's very much a part of an ongoing historical legacy of the modern age. Yeah, and, you know, that it really is, you can't, sep- the past and the present are inseparable, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's one long chain. And, and, you know, I think what we can do as historians is not predict the future, but give us a sense of how we got here, give us a sense of, you know, have we seen stuff like this before? Uh, what happens, you know, when in, in these sort of situations? 
so there, there, there's value to, to historic, historical voices right now. That's I'm not trying to deny that. I'm just mm-hmm. uh, certainly just take a step back with the predictions. Let's let's let it play out. Well, now let's get into it, partner. Ain't no revolution is televised and digitized. You've been hypnotized to Twitterize my silly guys. Cue to the evening news. Make sure you ill advised. Got you celebrating the generators of genocide. Any good deed is palm punished and penalized. Rulers of the world is sliced up like a dinner pie. Well, let's get into it, partner. I've been thinking uh, of this moment, of this now, during uh, a Zoom meeting earlier this morning with her students. One of my wife's, uh, she's a high school English teacher, one of my wife's very aware and invested students who's going to Georgetown University next year to study politics, uh, made the point that while the average lifespan of a pandemic is typically a couple or three years, the disease of racial violence has been more or less constant for the last three to 400 years. And I was uh, you know, tempted to say that, that masks, face masks, symbolize uh, both of these uh, you know, separate, but also yet you know, re- related kinds of crises. And, and, uh, and perhaps because by training, Josh, you know, I, I, as a historian, I try to understand these things. Uh, the conflict and upheaval as something other than a random or even merely, uh, you know, spontaneous state of, uh, of things, uh, you know, fodder for the 24-hour news cycle that is otherwise somehow inexplicable to all reason and rationality. You know, our chancellor sent around a, a message the other day calling it tragic and senseless. And, you know, I and in referring to the, the George Floyd uh, killing and and the results uh, and the resulting conflicts, and I, I understand what he means, but you know I I, I reject such shallow assessment. I see it as shallow uh, because I'm looking for some bigger picture. You know, to call it senseless suggests there's no real way to explain it. But you know I I think you can explain it, and I think there are fundamental causes, uh, a way for us to connect the dots of time and place and history. You know, just as we would do and have been doing for the pandemic to to locate and identify and understand what I'll call the American disease of racial violence. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's the best approach to develop ways, you know, in the end of of eradicating it. So much of my life, uh, my time on this planet and that of my children has borne witness to domestic upheaval of, of various types um, they seem to always punctuate the otherwise sort of, uh, you know, calm of American society. So let's take a look at the preamble to the Constitution, uh, the famous preamble, which proclaimed the ensuring of domestic tranquility. You know, it pays to remember, I think, Josh, that the United States is a nation born of protest. Uh, and it's a long list, as long as your arm, as they say, even in my own lifetime, you know. But as I think back over the various protests and such of, of our day, you know, just as of uh, history, it often seems uh, that the reporting of these things uh, kind of mimic the movie uh, Groundhog Day, uh, you know, uh, with Bill, Bill Murray. Uh, the same media headlines, uh, the same politician statements, the, the commentary of pundits repeating the same tired tropes as if our vocabulary suddenly shrinks to a few available descriptors. And so the headlines 
feature words like riot and looting and violent and lawlessness. Yeah, you want to throw in here? <laughs> that that's a pretty good list, but I, I just want to you know highlight the the way that particularly violence is is presented in that it's it's this kind of passive thing, or it's presented as the violence is sometimes senseless on the the side of the um, of the quote unquote rioters, as opposed to their violence being a reaction to the violence against them. So um, the, the framing of that is is usually very problematic in itself. Yeah, it's such a good point because it does create a very specific kind of, of narrative, you know, of mobs out of control, violent, destructive. And and usually in, in the American context, there's a healthy dose of, you know, non-white people, of people of color who are somehow, you know, at the forefront of this thing, therefore making it somehow more dangerous, more uh, illegitimate, etc. In other words, what we might summarize as a picture of the mob with all the implications. And so, you know, I was thinking about the history of now, of this moment we're in, and I was thinking about how riot and protest and crowd action, you know, really, from our perspective, I think as historians, is much more implicitly about political behavior, you know, for those who are disenfranchised and without political power in the bigger scope of America's past. And if we go back to the American national founding story and something like the Boston Tea Party of 1773, the famous Tea Party, right? But every grade school kid learns about, you know, in the history uh, instruction with all its, truly all its damage to property uh, even a corporate target, you know, at the time, the East India Company, you know, might as well have been bashing the windows in and Macy's and Fifth Avenue or something. Uh, and the resultant uh, law breaking, the British would have been happy to tell you it was all against the law. Uh, but, you know, it pays to remember that the Tea Party was, after all, a response to the over-policing by the British of, of Boston. You know, and we don't call it the, the Boston looting or even the Boston riot but rather the much more friendly and celebratory Tea Party. And thus, I think it you know raises that question of narrative that we've been on about a lot in our, our podcast and how the story gets told and how, how we choose to tell it with its telltale words and, and language and how that gives the meaning of the event, whether long ago or, or now. And, and hey, furthermore, how that story or, or history you know reflects the various moral commitments of those who are telling the story. So I guess what I would say in other words is that we're not, you know, we're not prisoners of the story and we can assert the right to tell the story or as a case maybe revise the history as we said in the last episode in line with the deeper truth of, of evidence uh, and the moral commitments that we have to a world in which we want to live. So, you know, I'll even offer the the sort of twin event historically from the national founding, the Boston Massacre, which occurred just three years uh, earlier. Uh, the Boston Massacre was a direct and violent confrontation by mostly uh, what I call dispossessed or you know, poor Bostonians who were resentful of a policing presence in their city by the British. Um, they were shot down by the, the, the police force of the British, you might say, you know, the British military. Um, and, and, you know, I can't help but think that it you know, kind of reminds me of what I saw the other day outside the White House, you know, as the, uh, the path was cleared for Donald Trump to have his photo op, you know, holding a Bible of all things, 
in the front ranks of those who cleared out that peaceful protest were, you know, U.S. military police. So I think, you know, again, the, the connection is, is, is there. And in, just in this instance, race and class entered uh, that narrative, too. That is the Boston massacre, Boston artisans, dock workers, sailors, laborers, including men of color, people who John Adams himself, a white man of property and privilege who was charged with defending the troops, uh, read, you know, the police described uh, Adams did describe them as a, quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes and mulattoes, Irish teagues and outlandish jacktars. Hey, I might as well be one of Donald Trump's press agents, you know, uh, d describing the uh, the protesters outside uh, the White House. What's the last time you've seen a jacktar, Josh? I, that's a great term. We got to bring that back. But I, uh, more importantly, I think we need to rename our podcast the Saucy Boys. <laughs> Is that? I would be honored. <laughs> you know, there was a racial element in the Boston Massacre. Uh, Crispus Attucks, who uh, uh, pretty well known, I guess you might say, as the martyr of the first martyr of the revolution, was himself a black man, had freed, been freed from slavery, freed himself from slavery, worked on the Boston docks and as a ship hand, uh, and was in the front ranks of those shot down by the, uh, the British. But when it got around to uh, encapsulating this in the media, Paul Revere, then the uh, silversmith and supporter of the colonial cause, in Boston, put together the famous uh, Boston Massacre engraving uh, and termed it the Boston Massacre, but basically went viral in its time. It appeared in all the newspapers uh, throughout the colonies and later on in virtually every grade school history textbook. And, and if you go back and you look at Revere's woodcut of the Boston Massacre, you can see just how he put his own, uh, you know, sort of self-interested story elements into it. it. The image appears to be in daytime. There's only the, a bare hint of a crescent moon suggesting evening time. It did take place at night. Uh, it shows what appear to be law-abiding, peaceful civilians shot at Point Blank Range by well-formed British troops laying in pools of blood. And, and maybe most importantly for the point here, they were all white in uh, Revere's engraving. No Crispus Attucks. So deleting, if, if you might, uh, or you might say the, the racial element, and yet it became the, uh, the imprimatur of the revolutionary struggle. So what is that, you know, that, that kind of doctored story, what does that leave us in trying to get our minds around the pictures and videos that are, that are reported? And here, you know, as a historian, I turn to some of the work that's been done in recent generations on this very question. And the guy I thought of right away was George Roudet, uh, a British historian who wrote a book on the crowd in the French Revolution. This was back in 1967, Roudet's book came out. Uh, what he called a history from below, where he was looking at the role of common people in social upheaval. And uh, you know, first and, and foremost, he was looking at a tradition of protest claimed by people who are denied a meaningful voice in the existing political system of the time, in that case, in the, the old regime system of France. Uh, at the time of the revolution or, or who otherwise, people who are otherwise excluded from the channels of power, uh, channels of power, you know, protected by a political system that caters to elites. And, and so looking at the history from below, Roudet showed that protest crowds are rarely the purposeless or, you know, malevolent mobs 
that they're sometimes depicted to be or are often depicted to be or as the terrorists, as Donald Trump has called them uh, recently, or even, and this was a great trope of the civil rights protests, you know, outside agitators, right? That is troublemakers coming from somewhere else, maybe anarchists or the like, uh, to do all these presumably illegitimate things. And I, I looked up George Ruday. Um, it's been a while since I'd read his work. And I found a New York Times obituary from 1993 when he passed away. And the writer said that Ruday delved into police archives and took a closer look that the demonstrators arrested, for example, in the French Revolution. He concluded that most of them were workers and middle class people with legitimate grievances at the time, like spiraling food prices, and that they lacked a voice in governing their fate. And, you know, what Rudet showed is that these crowds, and he called them crowds, not mobs, developed their own coded language, their own symbols. I think now of the raised fist, you know, types of expression, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, with specific targets of grievance, usually the police or, in the American case, racism or economic inequality. And, and even, you know, when you look at it this way, Josh, I would argue that even what's called looting expresses, uh, in, in the terms that Ruday defined it, you know, a very specific kind of crowd activity and, and a kind of almost pre-capitalistic, what we might call moral economy. That is a striking back at capitalism, perceived as the exploiter of the poor, you know, arbitrary layoffs, substandard wages, high rents, and even I'll throw in usurious interest rates on credit cards and payday loans. Um, and so just as in Boston in 1770, where people were upset at the economic collapse brought on by British restriction and, and workers upset at having to compete even for scarce jobs with off-duty British soldiers, the very people who are policing them. In this sense, looting is the name given by property interests. Seen from the grievances of the crowd, it's justified, however, as the expression of a moral economy, a setting right of things, a, a cause that redistributes and restores the proceeds of an economy that has expropriated or stolen value from the working poor in the name of supply and demand. So yeah, Josh, my conclusion, if we want a better world, we need to pay closer attention to the language of the oppressed and from them tell more inclusive, truer, fairer and better stories. Such a great point. Um, you know, language, we've talked about this before, language matters so much and just the reframing of, you know, if it was called the Boston riot, first of all, it never would be in this country because mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's such a central part of, of the larger story. But you can imagine what if the revolution didn't succeed? What if the British held on? And it would be would have been called in British histories of this period, the uh, the Boston riot. It, it the end matters ultimately for how these things get framed and and who does the framing and all this sort of sort of thing. And it is important for us as historians to, to dig into these places and into these points in history rather and try to, as I talked about last week, excavate you know, the, the, the stories in, in new ways to see different things and, and to, to get a better perspective um, because it does help us understand our present that much better. Yeah, I agree. And I know you're going to draw from the broader palette of world history. Yeah, so I wanted to, because as I've been kind of watching and observing and, and, and reading about all the stuff that's going on, where my mind has gone is not so much to the stories of American history, that they're there certainly and, and they're, they're relevant, but I think what I've kept coming back to is the history of, the, of empire and imperialism, particularly in, the modern, in modern times, uh, because you see so much of the same ideas being presented, some, uh, so many of the same pressures 
being applied in, in both cases in terms of imperialism and African-Americans, people of color in this country today, there's this common link of people being treated essentially as foreigners in their own land, uh, people being denied rights that they know that other people are granted. Um, and so I wanted to talk about India a little bit and Indian nationalism. The Indian nationalist movement is one that develops slowly over the course of the, the later 19th century. And even as it begins to you know, turn into a kind of modern national movement after 1885 or so, it's very, very moderate in terms of most of the leadership, most of those who take part in it are themselves Western educated. Uh, they're often lawyers. Uh, and the, famously in the first meeting of the Indian National Congress, which is this uh, you know, uh, immensely important nationalist organization, all the 85 delegates go around, they, uh, they pledge loyalty to, to Queen Victoria. Uh, later, when the Muslim League forms in 1906, they do the same thing. It's not Victoria any longer, but they, they pledge their allegiance to the crown and this kind of stuff. And then in 1905, there is this event that, that kind of ratchets up the tensions a bit. Um, I don't want to get into to the specific event, but for the first time, Indian nationalism becomes something like a mass movement. And people all across the country begin taking part in terms of protests, in terms of economic actions against the British, and the British respond with greater and greater repression. And so I just want to tell a couple stories from this this moment. So this is roughly 1905 to 1910 in which this stuff is happening. And so during this time, kind of ironically, the British government itself has has turned over to a, a liberal uh, prime minister. Um, it had been conservative up to that point, and now it turns to a, a liberal government. And the, the Secretary of State for, for India was a guy named uh, John Morley, who was known as somebody who was sympathetic to the interest of the colonized people. He was a big proponent of home rule in Ireland and this sort of thing. And what he found is that uh, for all his liberalism, he was unable to make any real changes. He, in many ways, he reminds, us of, reminds me of the Democratic Party today. Uh, a lot of kind of toothless critiques and this sort of stuff without a lot of, of real action. And, and so, for instance, in one story, one young English corporal, that I'm reading now from, from a source, one young English cor corporal in a fit of excitement shot the first native he encountered after he got to India. And when Morley heard of this, he uh, sent a letter to the viceroy or, or a telegram saying, what happened to the corporal? Was he put on trial? Was he hanged? If we are not strong enough to prevent murder, then our pharisaic glorification of the stern justice of the British Raj is windy nonsense. And indeed, it was windy nonsense because we don't know the corporal's name because he was never arrested. He was never tried. He was never punished in any way. And this was pretty typical for the British in India, where they were frequently subject to these kinds of, maybe not this extreme, but these kind of repressive activities and had very little voice to push back against it. And even when they had allies in the halls of power back in London, those men were rarely willing to put their political um, lives on the line to fight for the Indians themselves. And then in, in a story that I think is, is also very relevant, from 1905, you, you do see these boycott movements, you do see these protests, and you do begin seeing violence. Uh, not for the first time, but you do start seeing more violence on the part of particularly young Indian nationalists, radicals. And in, in one case, um, a, um, a Indian nationalist, who had not committed any, committed any violence, by the way, he merely made a political speech. And the speech was, was labeled seditious. And as a result of that, he was sentenced to what the British called, quote, transportation for life. He was basically sent to a prison colony for the rest of his life for making these seditious speeches. And the judge who gave him this, um, this sentence opined that, quote, there was no lawful occasion, as far as he could see, for any man in this country to make a political speech. 
So he basically said any political speech by any Indian was itself unlawful and could be subject to this kind of punishment. Unreal. When John Morley heard of this, our ineffectual uh, stand-in for the Democratic Party in, in <laughs> India, when he heard this, his response was just three words. He says, this explains bombs. That basically when you take away a people's right to voice their opinion, to voice their frustration, to voice their rage in ways that are peaceful, in ways that you know might be considered, quote-unquote, more constructive by those who fear this kind of violence, these kind of movements, then there is no other option other than bombs, quote-unquote, looting, uh, quote-unquote, riots, that voices need to be heard. And when people aren't listening, that's when you start seeing these more radical actions. Um, and so this, this story from India, I think, is very, very close to what we're seeing and have seen in the United States as well. Um, and it is, I think, really um, useful to, to look at our own situation, our racial history, our history of protest, our history of people of color trying to get their voices heard within this context of imperialism and colonialism. Yeah, well said. Uh, my goodness, because most of those elements that you just described in one form or another um, certainly present in what you know we're now experiencing uh, in our time. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to turn now to, uh, to an interview with one of our colleagues here. Chris is going to introduce him more fully, but this is Ricardo Catone, one of our professors at American River College. And he's going to speak to us about teaching Chicano history, teaching uh, Latin American history. Uh, can I just say in the age of Trump? <laughs> yes, you can. All right. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome our colleague and friend, Professor Ricardo Caton, to History Against the Grain today. Welcome, Ricardo. Much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. You attended the University of the Pacific and earned a bachelor's degree in history in 2003. By the way, that means there are two of us UOP Tiger history majors on the show today. Okay. Keep, so we can keep <laughs> Weiner in check. Um, after UOP, you continued your education at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and earned first a master's degree in Latin American and Iberian studies. That was in 2005, and then went on for the PhD in history with an emphasis on 19th century Latin America. Your dissertation, Defensores de la Patria, Mexico's Army and the 19th Century Creation of the Mexican Nation looked at the role the military played in implementing a sense of Mexican national identity, as it were, in the country from the 1810s to the 1850s. You've taught world history, Latin American history, U.S. history, first at Quinsegamon Community College in Worcester, Massachusetts, from 2011 to 2015, and then it was our great good fortune to steal you away uh, and bring you to American River College in 2015, where you've taught, again, world history, Latin American history, and Chicano history. You've also served as the faculty advisor for the American River College Latinos Unidos Club, and as I say, it is our distinct pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, great to have you, Ricardo. Um, I actually want to start by talking about something that happened in November last year. So you were you were scheduled to give a talk for Latino Heritage Month, um, and you were going to talk about the contributions of Latinos to the nation. And that morning, you found out that a student of ours had, um, or a student from the, uh, on our campus had been um, detained by ICE in June of that year, and as of November was still under ICE detention. And so it was before the talk and you were kind of, you know, unsure, a little, not sure what to do, whether you should just give the talk as, as planned or whether you should redo it in some way to address the situation. And, you know, I went on to my class, you went off to do your, your, your talk. And I, to my embarrassment now, I, I didn't check in with you to see what, what you end up doing, but I happened to watch it not that long ago. And, and what you end up doing is beginning the talk as you planned and then turning towards Donald Trump and the way that right from the beginning of his campaign, he depicted uh, Latinos in, um, you know, in his campaign and the demonization. And what, what I sense from that is just a general exhaustion with this idea that you constantly have to justify your existence in this country, right? That, that there's this process by which you have to lay out these contributions to make this case for why you belong. So can you just talk about, you know, this, this idea of, any group really, but having to constantly justify belonging in this country, because there is a sense in which for non-white people in, in particular, that belonging is a provisional thing. How do you address that in your, in your class? And, and do you get tired of having to constantly lay out these contributions just to, again, kind of justify your own existence? Correct. Yes. Um, so indeed, my talk, I, I wanted to highlight uh, the contributions that Latinos have made certainly to this country. Um, and I wanted to focus on history, politics, business, art, literature, film, TV, sports, music, STEM. So I wanted to do this, this, this sort of large overview of just the, the contributions to, to remind us of how significant certainly the, the role of Latinos has been in uh, not only in the creation of this country, but the, you know, the, the further development of this country, if you will. Uh, but sure enough, <clears throat> that morning before my talk, um, uh, I, I got word of uh, the detainment of the student, which actually he, he, he was previously one of my students in my Chicano history class. So it, it was especially uh, uh, sort of a personal hit to me um, because I, I knew this student uh, personally. And it just brought to mind the, the rhetoric that we have heard from this administration um, and, and of course, this, this rhetoric is by no means new. Certainly this rhetoric to an extent when you study the history of the United States, you know, tends to pop up um, every uh, five to 10 years for one group or another. But certainly since the, uh, 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 the 1850s, uh, Mexicans in particular have been the, the, you know, the target of this constant um, belittling, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, who Mexicans are, what they contribute to the country and so forth. So it was indeed a point of just frustration that here I was about to uh, state all of these contributions which supposedly are commemorating and even celebrating the contributions of uh, Latinos in this country. Yet we're living under this administration that uh, continues to belittle, continues to criminalize Latinos, you know, referring to uh, Latinos in general, but certainly Mexicans and Central Americans in particular as uh, gang members, uh, drug dealers and rapists and so forth. 
So uh, I decided that I had to speak up. Now, in, in previous episodes of, uh, of the podcast, um, I recall you, both of you have um, discussed this idea of uh, objectivity in history and that historians, right, to what extent must we be objective and, and can objectivity even be achieved? Um, and certainly I got to admit that um, as, as a, a student of history and in my early years of being a professor, I very much strived to do that. That was my, my goal. I'm just going to be objective. I'm just going to uh, tell the history, if you will, and then the students decide. Um, but especially uh, under this administration, I feel that just to tell the history is not sufficient. Uh, we have to uh, go a little further um, and, and highlight the hypocrisies. Um, for otherwise, I feel that to an extent we're actually contributing to this continued notion that, that indeed um, everything is okay, everything's all right in this country, and, and you may get you know, a few situations here and there, but otherwise you know, uh, the country moves on and, and, and this idea of uh, liberty and freedom and so on uh, continues to be at the forefront. Um, so I decided that uh, we have to speak up, not necessarily tell students what to think, but emphasize the, the hypocrisies, emphasize the erroneous proclamations, um, and certainly under this particular administration, emphasize uh, how the words of, of this particular president um, are, are very much ignorant. Uh, it, it is quite clear that either he doesn't know the history of the United States uh, or if he does know it, he uh, prefers to distort it for the sake of uh, emphasizing this notion that basically non-white individuals have contributed little to nothing and, uh, and more than anything, they have just come to destroy and take and so on and so forth. So um, I felt that it was absolutely necessary to, to emphasize just how um, infuriating it can be that we have this long legacy uh, as Latinos of participation, contribution in this country, but at the end of the day, the stereotypes seem to uh, take over, right? The stereotypes of the uh, undocumented immigrant, the stereotype of the, the criminal, the, the drug dealer, uh, the smuggler, and so on and so forth. Um, actually, there was another thing that I wanted to bring up in a, in a previous um, episode. You had also brought up, and this was you, Chris, you brought up the, the logo map. And again, how that uh, is part of that creation of the myth of the nation. And, uh, and, and to that, I wanted to connect that not only do we have a logo, if you will, in terms of our map, in terms of how we view the, the, the boundaries of our country, uh, but there also seems to be uh, almost a jingle and a slogan that goes along with the logo. And the jingle and the slogan to be the, 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 the continued repetition of the notion of freedom, liberty, justice, democracy, that that is what our country is about, freedom, liberty, justice, and democracy. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful jingle, and it definitely it's catchy and, and, and it sticks uh, in your head. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of false advertisement there. Yeah, that's well, well stated uh, for sure. You know, you're talking here, it seems to me, Ricardo, about the various intersections you know, in, in our own classrooms, really, uh, between the history we study, the heritage students bring with them, uh, the personal identities of our students, uh, and then, of course, the larger political world and the conflicts 
which as we know, living as we are in a moment of tremendous civil unrest, uh, find their way naturally into our discussion. And, and as you suggest, it's, it's not that you wish to tell your students what to think, but to perhaps prepare them to think about these various intersections. And so I, you know, I want to ask you, because we're going to come back to this idea of borders and maps and such, yeah. you know, to, to what extent should the histories we teach uh, inform the sorts of struggles and conflicts and protests that we see playing out now? You know, a, a course like your Chicano history course itself uh, as, as a course born of activism, of political activism um, in the 60s, primarily. Uh, yeah, well, to what extent is it perhaps better suited maybe to address those stories of, of displacement and discrimination, the confrontation with power and these sorts of things that we're witnessing going on, you know, in our world today? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting with uh, these courses that we have and certainly they, they, they rise out of the 1960s civil rights movement, right? But the, the you know, Chicano history, African-American history, uh, to an extent, uh, women's history and so forth. And it's beautiful in the sense that, of course, we get to emphasize the, uh, again, the participation, the agency of, of these various groups that have, for the most part, been um, a footnote at best in, in the traditional you know, U.S. history telling right of the history of this country at the same time I, i've always had a bit of a, a questioning of the the way that we approach it because to an extent by by doing the chicano history the african-american history and so forth um we are literally right separating it from a u.s history course and and i think many times that um that idea that somehow this is different from official u.s history um, gets into the minds of not just our students, but I think, you know, the community uh, as a whole, that somehow this is just sort of a, a special topic, literally, right, a special topic, and it doesn't have as much to do with the history of the United States as a whole. Um, so uh, I, I do love teaching the, the Chicano history, but many times I also would wish that, that rather than, than view it as such, right, we just uh, emphasize that this is U.S. history. This is very much part of, of U.S. history. Um, but you're absolutely correct when it comes to, you know, our, our Chicano history, African-American history. Uh, these were uh, histories that were very much pushed because of the necessity, because they were not part of the official U.S. history courses. And, uh, and, and certainly when it comes to Chicano history, it is that, um, uh, that civil rights movement that emphasized that we need to uh, uh, showcase how um, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans have been part of, of the United States. And if it were not for the protest, if it were not for the demands, then certainly nothing would change. At the end of the day, right, change comes from, from the push, even if, if a push that uh, for some is undesirable, but you have to push for the sake of making the change. Otherwise, the status quo remains. So certainly, uh, Chicano history is uh, essential uh, to emphasize the, the, the struggles and why it is that uh, a history like Chicano history came about. But I would also hope that uh, we 
include more of that in our general, you know, U.S. history surveys to emphasize that, uh, you know, this has been part of the creation of the history of the United States throughout, that it's not just, you know, until we get into the 1960s, let us say, for Chicanos, African-Americans, Native Americans, um, Asian Americans, certainly as well, um, that this has always been part of the history of the United States and that whenever we've moved in a new direction, it has been precisely because there has been a push towards it. It wasn't just because the status quo decided all of a sudden that uh, they were willing to make that change. You made so many good good points there, but I, I think the kind of struggle you're talking about is that the ideal would be that U.S. history was just included all these different groups, included women, included Latinos, it included African-Americans. We wouldn't have to have these, you know, almost ghettoized history, it almost seems like. At the same point, at the right. same point, you know, you were making the case earlier about objectivity and um, and it's almost like you, you almost need to overcorrect sometimes to make up for the rhetoric and make up for the stereotypes and make up for the presentation of these kind of, you know, outgroups of American history, the ones who are not considered, uh, you know, in the, 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 the power structure. You almost got to overcorrect and then stress uh, these kind of political points even even more than you would. Um, because of, of the specific, specific history that we've, we've had. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, um, and again, um, previously, uh, both of you had discussed this, that it's almost as if um, the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, if you will, has always been the, the active participant, right? The, 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 it's, it's they who made things turn. Uh, and, and along the way, non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh, basically, they're either impediments or, or just assistance along the way, uh, not providing much of, of that agency in terms of how they were direct participants and indeed, uh, time and again, actually leading the way uh, uh, that it's not just the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that, that, that's at the forefront. Um, so that does become a bit of the frustration that you need to correct, if you will, uh, when it comes to teaching certainly Chicano history, that there's so many misconceptions about who uh, really is responsible, if you will, of creating this country and, and how the creation of the country came about. And certainly um, that east to west uh, trajectories, it, it did occur, but we got to expand that lens and move away from just thinking that it was that east to west uh, trajectory that brought about the United States of America. Uh, the lens has to be expanded to emphasize uh, the other regions that were certainly uh, active at the time. Uh, I, I remind my students that history does not occur in a vacuum. And just because we may be focusing on a particular region doesn't mean that other events are not taking place elsewhere uh, in the country and elsewhere in the world. Um, so I, I think that that certainly needs to be um, uh, highlighted more, if you will. The, the fact that there are other events, that there are other players, and certainly it's not just about white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You know, it's a, it's a great point. And, and uh, look, I mean, I've, I've made no secret, certainly on this podcast and probably countless meetings with you, you fellows in the hallway and department meetings and such, basically anybody will listen to me, that the, you know, U.S. national history is, is a fundamentally flawed construct. And so while, I mean, I, I agree, you know, Josh is right on the money here that you know, this, this challenge of integrating these, what we might call them subnational histories into the larger national history has been ongoing for a while. My contention is that it's, it's wrongheaded 
because it's trying to put these vital histories into the wrong container. So look, without requiring that you agree with me, Ricardo, let me ask you, how does the bordering of national histories, uh, especially with that traditional, in the case of the Anglo history, the traditional East-West telling of US history where white folks start on the East Coast uh, oriented toward the West and in successive generations then uh, follow that, that directional pattern. How does that fundamental setup of the story, that East-West telling of a bounded US history, in your mind, distort uh, the true uh, historical influence uh, of Spanish-speaking or, or Chicano people uh, in the in you know in in the resulting tale again uh, by focusing uh, and, and and making that our starting point that east to west right the uh, uh, can go back to the notion of the, the 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 pilgrims and so forth. Well, what we then do is indeed we now put uh, a lens on the the, the creation of, of this history. In a place to, in a place where, to an extent, right, already, if you look elsewhere, the ball has rolled already or has gone rolled already. So what do I mean by this? Um, in my Latin American history classes, and certainly my Chicano history class, but particularly my Latin American history classes, um, we, of course, uh, discuss um, the civilizations that were here already in the Americas before the arrival of any of the Europeans. So that is uh, uh, essential that um, we start there because indeed, right, otherwise you fall into that trap of the belief that it is Europeans, quote unquote Europeans, that started this notion of civilization in the Americas. Of course, that is, um, that is erroneous because civilization was already very much present in the Americas. You already have thriving uh, complex civilizations in the Americas before the arrival of any Europeans. However, if, uh, if our focus is on, okay, but uh, let us look at the European uh, basically influence in the Americas and when the Europeans begin to settle and implement their, uh, you know, their, their, their long-term settlements and so forth. Well, okay, then if we want to look at the, um, the, the, the established settlements of Europeans, uh, we have to look at what the Spanish were doing. And we know that indeed it's the Spanish that are the first to really implement those permanent settlements in the Americas much earlier than anything the, the English certainly are doing over there in what we call the East Coast. Um, you know, the oldest official European settlement of the Americas, and by the Americas I mean, you know, the Western Hemisphere from uh, basically Canada down to Argentina and the Caribbean, um, you have to look at what today is the Dominican Republic and Santo Domingo, and particularly um, by 1502, at least the establishment is there. And this is, if you look at it, you know, the oldest official uh, uh, still remaining um, of these European settlements once the Europeans begin to come here to the Americas. So when we talk about uh, the European influence, uh, we have to talk about the Spanish first and foremost. When we talk about the first, you know, U European language that is officially implemented in the Americas, will have to be Spanish. Uh, the same goes with the first, you name it, right? The first university, the first uh, uh, hospital, uh, and so forth. Well, that is very much the Spanish implementing that influence here. So, if we truly want to understand how it is that this country that we call the United States of America uh, develops. 
well, you have to go further than what the English were doing in the East Coast. You got to go to the Spanish. But even before that, of course, you have to go back to the, what were the Native American uh, peoples doing here? How were their societies being structured? And how will that influence then what Europeans will implement afterwards? Certainly, uh, um, the Spanish will borrow much from Native, Native American way of doing things, um, you know, from society to even forms of government. The same thing goes with the Portuguese after them, later on the Dutch, the French, and then the English. So um, I think again, to go back to your question, if we continue to focus on that East to West, we are uh, continuing what, uh, and certainly I'm not the first to say this, uh, but we're continuing what, what, what tends to be seen as uh, both uh, white supremacy, uh, but more particularly this notion of white Anglo-Saxon supremacy. Um, and if we, if we want to move away from that distortion, then we again have to expand the lens of, of human activity taking place in the Americas that, that takes us uh, away from just that focus on the East Coast and uh, you know, the pilgrims or later the 13 colonies and so forth. It's such an important idea to kind of expand what that story is because it, it really does give your students a, a vastly different idea of, of what the history is, but maybe their place in it as well. I, I was just reading a thing by uh, Franz Fanon, this uh, Martinique-born uh, scholar and, and philosopher, and, and he talks about this point in his life where he started learning about African history, and he said, quote, the white man was wrong. I was not a primitive, not even a half man. I belonged to a race that had already been working in gold and silver 2,000 years ago. And he's kind of making the point that he's been lied to about civilization. He's been lied to about barbarism and, and, and savagery. And to, to what extent do you feel like, you know, that's part of your job in the classroom is to, to give your students that sense. I mean, particularly students who, who, uh, whose background is South American, Central American, Mexican uh, from the Caribbean, that part of what you're doing is not just teaching history, but you're trying to give them a sense of themselves that's, that's broader and, and, and deeper and um, than what they've been exposed to before. Yeah, I think it's essential. It's essential. And it's essential to what I do. And I certainly take it as one of my my duties. Um, time and again, it never fails. And this is from the very first time I started teaching. Uh, and again, this takes me back to to Worcester, Mass. But um, when discussing those uh, civilizations that were here before the arrival of, of, of the Europeans, uh, in particular, Columbus and so forth, uh, but not only that, to also focus on the contributions that uh, people of um, uh, indigenous, um, African, uh, but also Iberian, in particular Spanish and Portuguese, right, the Iberian Peninsula, the, the, the contributions that peoples with those ancestries have made in this country, and to highlight them, to discuss them. Um, it never fails. My students say, whoa, I, I've never heard of this. Why is it that I never heard of this, right? Um, and, and to them, many times they come into history, particularly a history that deals with the United States, with this idea that, um, okay, certainly, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn about the United States, uh, uh, you know, those who came before me and so forth, but I don't really have a place in that. It doesn't seem like a, a, there, there has been a role that Latinos have played. Um, because it hasn't been emphasized, it hasn't been focused on, and because again, we continue to look at it from the east, west, you know, 13 colonies and so forth. So once we now um, get to study the civilizations, get to study the contributions, it is a sense, quite ironically, but I'm glad, it is a sense like, my goodness, 
I do belong here. I am part of this country. You know, I have ancestors, descendants, uh, uh, excuse me, um, you know, those peoples who came before me who very much played a role in creating this country to which I am a part of. Um, so that is essential. If we truly want to create uh, citizens, if you will, uh, that, that see themselves as part of this country, then we have to emphasize how those who came before them contributed to creating this country. Otherwise, we continue this notion of uh, basically the perpetual foreigner. Right, that uh, unless you fall into the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant category, you're nothing more than uh, basically a visitor. Uh, you're nothing more than just a person who's around but doesn't have any actual roots in here. Um, earlier, you were mentioning about that frustration and about have to continuing to almost justify our, our very existence in this country. And indeed, part of that frustration is this uh, notion uh, that uh, there are no real roots that uh, certainly peoples of Latin American ancestry have in this country, um, that somehow we're all just recent arrivals, we're all recent immigrants and so forth. Um, but, but of course, that is, that is preposterous. Again, when you look at the history of uh, at least those who come from Spanish ancestry, you know, we're talking about the early 1500s um, in what is the, the, the Americas. So yeah, yeah, I think that it's uh, necessary certainly for, for me to emphasize that sense of not only belonging, but contribution. And I, I want to emphasize that, right? Contributions to making this country uh, because it didn't just come about from one day to the next. Uh, and it wasn't just, again, the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant at the forefront. Yeah, that's a really <laughs> profound uh, point. And I would, I would only uh, add to it that it's not only a matter of somehow making contributions to the United States, but a much larger history, uh, as you pointed out earlier, you know, one that precedes the United States, uh, whether it be the pre-Columbian native peoples or later uh, Spanish rivals. You know, California was Spanish speaking before it was ever English speaking. Um, and these things are, are right in front of us. There, as I say, it's a history hidden in, in plain sight, but because, in my estimation, because of the national story, it's a problem of storytelling, that it's not more uh, widely understood. And so uh, here's what I want to ask you is, because it seems what you're arguing for, Ricardo, is a kind of reintegration of histories. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that uh, this border issue, you know, which is an issue in our politics. It's also very much an issue in our history, storytelling, that the border falls like a guillotine on the histories of the people on either side of that border. So if, if we pull the border away and talk about a larger history, say, of, of the, the hemisphere or North America, what have you, um, that we can look at. I, I, I would imagine that for many of your students in, in your Chicano history class, they have family living on the other side of that, that border, extended family. What would it mean, do you suppose, you know, to not only the telling of the story, but to the, the self-identity of, of Chicano students to, to reintegrate that history by showing that long and enduring connection that precedes even the U.S. national history, but continues right on through uh, the national history. So instead of this awkward sort of sub-story or, or sub-national history, you know, that you were talking about earlier, you have a fully 
integrated history. Yes, yes. Um, and and I, I'm by no means the first, right, to, to propose such a thing. I know that both of you were already uh, discussing this, this idea of this uh, expansion of the lands and moving away from the borders. Uh, but certainly in terms of um, historical approaches, right, that there's a whole field of history called borderlands history that has been basically focusing on this, uh, this, this uh, approach of, uh, well, not necessarily forgetting the border per se, because indeed, you know, the, uh, as borders are created, that in itself creates this, this, this sort of special sort of region, if you will, that, that becomes quite different from uh, the, the rest of uh, the country, if you will. And that's, that's the case to this day, you know, for anyone who's traveled to the border uh, regions of the United States, the same thing to the northern border regions of Mexico. Uh, those regions tend to be quite uh, different, different in terms of uh, uh, things from, you know, cultural practices, if you will, uh, even the way that the language is spoken. Indeed, uh, the, the, you have those individuals, uh, in this case, I'm thinking, you know, places like Mexico City or Guadalajara, uh, for example, in Mexico, who believe that uh, the peoples of the northern regions of Mexico somehow have become too, quote-unquote, Americanized, and that even the way that they speak Spanish is no longer, quote-unquote, correct, because now they're mixing too much of English uh, words into them and so forth. So, indeed, the border becomes its own sort of unique region within the larger country. And, and, uh, and that is what Borderlands history has done, not only to look at that uh, unique a set of characteristics that had that now become part of the border, but now let's go beyond those borders, right? And and to look at a history of North America, for example, which has been one of the key uh, approaches of borderlands uh, uh, studies, particularly here in the United States. That let's look at it as this sort of uh, large uh, mass of land that certainly if you look at a political map is divided into three countries, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. But let's at least do away with those uh, created borderlines and to look more of, of the, the human uh, interactions, the human uh, activities that have then uh, led to particular events that, that now we consider, you know, U.S. history events or Canadian history events or Mexican history events. And also let us move away from just seeing it as it all began in this one region or the other. So um, certainly not only let's, let's stop, look at it at east and west, but also not think of it as necessarily a west and east or a south to north and so forth, but it's a larger region overall in which you have these various, you know, goings on and, and let's look at them and, and, and see, right, uh, what connections do they have with one another, uh, what, what's happening in that particular region and why, but not necessarily to make it as, well, this is where things began and so forth, right? Um, so already, uh, again, the, 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 the history of Borderlands has, um, you know, uh, attempted to present the history of the United States, the history of Mexico, to an extent the history of Canada, uh, in this larger context rather than in national context. And I apologize, uh, Chris, I, I, didn't, I don't recall the second part of the question. <laughs> uh, believe me, your answer was better than the question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, you talk about North America, but I mean, you've expressed frustration before about the fact that often when we talk about when, when North America is discussed, Mexico is just left out, right? Yes, yes. And actually, um, I, uh, I just recently attended, attended through Zoom, but I, I attended a, a talk 
about the history of pandemics. I felt it was, you know, important. Got to get a sense of the history of pandemics and how they've contributed to changes in, in world societies. Um, but uh, this particular historian um, did the very thing that I, I just find also a bit of a pet peeve, frustrating. And that uh, when he mentioned the, um, the diseases that were brought by the Spanish uh, to the Americas, in particular, he focused on the um, you know, smallpox in uh, the Mexica Empire, what we call the Aztec Empire. Um, he referred to you know, basically the Mexica region as South America. Uh, and, uh, and so I was quick to make the comment in the chats, you know, to remind this particular historian that uh, Mexico is part of North America. And so sure enough, uh, you know, another misconception that I get time and again uh, with students is that they tend to think that pretty much anything south of the United States must be South America. And I always wondered myself, you know, to myself, why is that the case? Why is it that you think that? Um, and certainly I saw it with my students back at uh, UCSB when I was uh, a teaching assistant. I saw it with my students at Quitsigamon, and uh, I, I see it with my students here at American Rural College that, um, you know, they, they continue to believe that anything south of the United States is South America. And uh, while I've never actually conducted a survey to get a sense why, perhaps I should, but it just seems to me that because we refer to the United States as, as America, right? That, that everything south of the United States, i.e. America, must be South America. So that, that, that is problematic. And, um, and certainly one of the things that from the very first day uh, that we meet in my classes, I, uh, I try to do away with many of those misconceptions that we have about terminology and certainly uh, about geography uh, when it comes to uh, naming these regions. And, uh, and yes, Mexicans are North Americans. They are not South Americans. Also, Mexicans are not Central Americans. And yet that's another one that I get often that uh, Mexico and Central America are connected, the, the, the notion that it's all one region. Um, but again, that's, that is not the case. And we, we need to be clear about those um, regions, about uh, what role they play, certainly in the formation of those identities within the peoples of those regions. Um, and of course, that's all part of what we discuss and uh, try to clarify uh, throughout the semester. That's that's a great point, and it really, and we can we can finish out here today uh, with what was sort of the second part of my freely roaming question earlier. Was so again in talking about reintegrating geography, reintegrating histories. You know what what would you say is is the benefit that your students, especially your Latino students, derive from that? that reintegration? Uh, well, again, an understanding of uh, where they, they are in the world, right? An understanding of uh, uh, Latinos as well, in terms of um, where uh, they are in the world and, and why that difference. So for example, another, another um, term that I wanted to clarify, and, and actually I tried that in the talk that you mentioned, um, uh, uh, Josh, at the beginning, in terms of my talk about uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, um, is this term uh, Hispanic, right? Hispanic. And, and Hispanic was certainly basically the go-to term um, you know, throughout the 80s, certainly into the 90s. And, and to an extent, you see it a little bit today, although I think Latino has, has now uh, become the, the more accepted term. But when you think of the term Hispanic, right, um, 
the term Hispanic derives from the idea of, of Hispania, right? basically Hispanic coming from, from a Spanish ancestry. So certainly you cannot say that all peoples of Latin America are Hispanic, but that's, that's just uh, plain incorrect. If we're talking about Hispanic having those Spanish roots, then certainly you know, peoples of Brazil for the most part certainly don't have those Spanish roots. Um, uh, uh, peoples of uh, places like Jamaica, and certainly I consider Jamaica part of Latin America overall, um, they don't have that Hispanic uh, uh, roots necessarily, at least in terms of the way that people see themselves today. Uh, the same thing with Haiti and so forth. So um, a term like Hispanic tends to be used fairly, you know, uh, freely, but there's so much wrong with that term, um, and we need to explain why. So what is it that that's behind these terms and why is it important to understand what does uh latin american mean what does latinx there's yet another term that has become very popular today um how is that different from latino for example and the same goes with hispanics uh and of course for my chicano history class uh i i i throughout the semester we get a sense of well what does it mean to be chicano uh, when my students come in, for the most part, those who have heard of the word Chicano tend to uh, jump to the conclusion that Chicano just basically means Mexican-American. It's just another term for Mexican-American. Um, but, but it is not. I mean, it goes much further than that because Chicano uh, is political, is social, and it's an economic. And, and, and throughout this history that I teach in my Chicano history class, by the end of the semester, what I want my students to understand is, well, what does Chicano mean then? Is it just being Mexican-American? Um, and, and it's so uh, gratifying to see that my students have understood that, no, it's not just being Mexican-American. There's much more complexity in that. So um, I think that that is the, the value of understanding what these terms actually mean. And, uh, and when you do decide to embrace one of these terms, that you're embracing it because you actually understand the history behind it, the meaning behind it, the symbolism behind it. Uh, rather than just the term that was applied to you. Well, Ricardo, this has been awesome talking to you. Will you come back sometime? Talk to us again? Oh, absolutely. I, love I feel it. like there's more to say here, but <laughs> it's uh, always a pleasure. And uh, hope you and your family are doing well. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, and again, keep, keep, keep up with the, the good work. I love the show. Oh, appreciate it. Talk to me. I loved hearing from, from Ricardo there. Um, he's, he's been such an uh, important voice in our department such an important voice for our students as well. And, you know, it also is, is a reminder that, that obviously right now uh, we're talking a lot about the African-American community, but there are people of color throughout this country who have also experienced, you know, this, this form of racism and dehumanization throughout, you know, the past 150 years or longer in, in, in this country. And hearing all these voices, I think, widens our story and widens, you know, the way we need to understand our past much more so than we do with, with our usual blinkered view um, that, that we often get in, in American history. I totally agree. And at a time like uh, we're now living, uh, a time of, of civil unrest and domestic intranquility, you know, I think uh, sometimes ideas and stories and histories uh, cohere in ways that they might not otherwise do. And I'll give you an example. And and, and suggest where this is going. Uh, I watched the other day, Josh, uh, on Netflix, uh, Ava DuVernay's award-winning documentary called 13th. It refers to the 13th Amendment uh, of the Constitution, which uh, abolished slavery. Now, this documentary came out in 2016, 
and I'd read bits and pieces about it, but hadn't watched it until now, you know, as as America is literally, you know, uh, uh, you know, fired by the the, you know, the the protests uh, in the streets. And I want to suggest to our listeners uh, that if you get a chance, please watch Ava DuVernay's uh, 13th, because it, it traces beautifully the enduring legacy of slavery, something we've spoken uh, of in this uh, podcast, particularly the 1619 Project, with which I think it pairs beautifully, the enduring legacy of slavery and racial oppression in our country. And she does a great job as, uh, you know, connecting uh, the dots of the story. Uh, at the very beginning of uh, the documentary, a sobering statistic delivered uh, by none other than uh, Barack Obama. Obama says that the United States is home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And so with that startling uh, statistic, that sobering statistic, uh, they follow up with an equally sobering uh, metric that black men make up 6% of the, U- the U.S. population, but 40% of the prison population. That's 6% of the total population, but 40% of the prison population. And though this has long been advertised and trumpeted by white politicians and white police forces as, quote, law and order, and sanctioned by white voters as being, quote, tough on crime, some more of those familiar tropes, right? Uh, in its most basic sense, it has been a deliberate, uh, Duvernay argues, a deliberate and racially targeted denial of freedom. So in other words, slavery, really, by another name, but, but essentially slavery in another form, right down to the presumption that the black body can be enchained, incarcerated, and ultimately, and so sadly, as we saw in the video with George Floyd, that the black body can ultimately be violated in whatever brutal way the oppressor might wish, all in the name of law and justice. And uh, gosh, she goes back to the 80s and the media accounts that hyped the crack, co- crack cocaine epidemic and the gangs and super predators. I mean, those those were the tropes of the 80s and 90s in the storytelling of the media and politicians uh, delighted in showing uh, handcuffed black men. So again, the black body being put front and center, you know, as sort of uh, iconic in its mistreatment. Uh, this has also been a major insight, as you know, Josh, from other leading black voices, including ta Coates and his uh, excellent um uh, memoir Between the World and Me, which was published in 2015. Mm-hmm. And just recently, even I saw last week, uh, a TV host, Trevor Noah, himself born in South Africa under apartheid, who referred uh, to the fact that police in America are looting black bodies. Wow. Uh, so DuVernay's documentary film, uh, 13th, as I say, helps to connect the dots through time, showing the ongoing history of all this. When I think of systems of oppression historically in this country, says Glenn Martin, a former inmate and criminal justice reform advocate featured in the film, they're durable. They tend to reinvent themselves and they do it right under your nose. So important, you know, to our, I think our current perspective, Josh, is 13th shows is that what he calls these systems of oppression uh, from slavery to lynching 
and Jim Crow to the war on drugs and mass incarceration and embedded in the high, uh, entire history, these systems of oppression embedded in the entire history of our country. If you dismiss black complaints or mistreatment by police as being completely rooted in our modern context, then you're missing the point completely, says Kevin Gannon, history professor at Grandview State, also featured in the film. There has never been, he says, a period in our history where the law and order branch of the state has not operated against the freedoms, the liberties, the options, the choices that have been available to the black community, generally speaking. So what does the history of now tell us? Well, I think if we want a better world, we need our students to be critical consumers of history, capable of discerning that more true, more inclusive story. And as Professor Gannon puts it, I don't want to teach my students to think outside the box. I want to teach them to light the box on fire and dance on its ashes. So I don't know about you, Josh, but that sounds like a history against the grain to me. That's a great quote. Uh, I, I think if you had been at the, the protest I was at last, uh, yesterday, you would have been um, felt very optimistic because there was a lot of, of young people there, uh, a lot of local high school students, and a lot of them actually took the microphone and spoke. And um, they spoke to the kind of stuff you're talking about. They were aware that this, these systems of oppression are, are not new, that they've been around for a long time. I had, there was one uh, young, uh, young man who spoke about the, the Tulsa riots, quote unquote Tulsa riots or the Tulsa massacre, which was um, 99 years ago as of May 31st, um, there were people who spoke about, um, you know, again, not just race as, as this, or racism as an individual, you know, moral failing, but race as part of a system of power. And so it was really great to hear Beautiful. these young voices yeah. who were really attuned to this larger story and larger history in a way that, I, I mean, I was not that attuned, certainly, uh, at 17, 18, right. 19, maybe for obvious reasons, because it, it, you know, as a white person, um, it wasn't, didn't seem as relevant to me or wasn't something that was foremost in my mind. But right. um, for, for these students, it was, it was very, very powerful seeing them um, and, and just how aware they were of, of these systems. Ah, good to know. I want to take us out here. I, I was talking about imperialism and, and what we can kind of learn about from imperialism about our own situation. And I'm going to take us back to the 1940s, um, a point in time in which, particularly in the French Caribbean, a uh, place like Martinique in particular, there emerged this movement that's, that's referred to as negritude. Um, and, and negritude was about, you know, kind of restoring pride to the West African community, to the larger Pan-African community, or the African diaspora, we'll say, around the world, and kind of reframing these old stories in new ways and getting these voices heard. Um, Famously out of this movement, and one of the founders is a man named Amy Césaire, who I believe I quoted before, uh, but his wife Suzanne was also a, a, a poet and a, 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 an artist and a writer herself, a big proponent of surrealism, and in a piece called actually Surrealism and Us, uh, which was printed in their journal. And by the way, they're printing this journal in 1943 uh, at a time in which the Nazis occupied France and therefore the Vichy government controlled Martinique, and they were still publishing this journal uh, which was extremely critical of imperialism and fascism and all this stuff. Uh, so literally putting their lives on the line to get this stuff out there. And in this piece, amongst other things, Suzanne Césaire writes um, of this historical context she was in. Millions of black hands will fling their terror across the furious skies of world war. 
freed from a long benumbing slumber, the most disinherited of all people will rise up from plains of ashes. Um, and wow. she later writes, we shall recover our value as metal, our cutting edge of steel, our unprecedented communions. Beautiful words by Suzanne Césaire, powerful, and I think very relevant for our own times. Oh, so, so remarkable. Yeah, the freedom fighters that today stand in a long line of historical projects that, you know, support their claims. And I think that's what understanding the history of now as much as anything, you know, can, can powerfully remind us. Well, this felt, felt good to talk about this stuff. We'll be back next week to talk about, we'll see how, how things develop. At this point, we don't know how things are going to develop in a week. Stay tuned. Uh, but we will always strive to not just talk about the past, but, but to talk about stuff that's relevant to the present as well. Absolutely. Remember, Faulkner, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Take care, everyone. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. So we